Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, your host for this Throwback FDNY podcast. Each show has three segments going back in time about the FDNY and its history. You can listen to all of the past episodes by going to the website of the New York City Fire Museum at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwback FDNY and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Now, let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, in 1899, a deadly fire at the Windsor Hotel disrupts the St. Patrick's Day Parade. In 1902, the first female ambulance surgeon takes the reins. And in 2003, for the first time, a woman is promoted to the rank of battalion chief in the FDNY. It's March 17, 1899. The largest St. Patrick's Day parade in the world is making its way up Fifth Avenue. The FDNY contingent has hundreds of members marching. In those days, Irish immigrants and Irish Americans probably represented the largest ethnicity in the department. Shortly after 3 p.m., a fire broke out at the Windsor Hotel on Fifth Avenue between 46th and 47th Streets. Here's how the Saturday Globe newspaper described it. Quote, The burning of the Windsor Hotel in New York last week will live in history as one of the most horrible hotel holocausts. Nobody yet knows just how many were burned to ashes, how many are buried, half-charred, beneath the piles of masonry and twisted iron. End quote. And remember, this all transpired in the midst of the parade. The hotel was built between 1871 and 1873, at a time when hotels were occupied by many permanent residents, not just temporary stays. It had a flaw that violated the New York City fire codes of the time. It had several large open areas with no fire barriers. In paradox to that, each room was equipped with a rope, intended to be used by occupants to repel or slide down the outside of the building, supposedly to safety. Both features resulted in numerous casualties, including deaths at this fire. When the fire broke out, FDNY firefighters, in full-dress uniform marching in the parade, made their way to the hotel. The fire allegedly started when a man watching the parade below lit a cigar with a match that he tossed out of the window, but it blew back into the room, catching a lace curtain and setting it ablaze. He evacuated, but he did not send out any kind of alarm or warning. It wasn't until the fire had grown essentially out of control before a hotel employee discovered it. Many of the stories that come from this tragedy involve the women who were present. Among the fatalities were the wife and disabled daughter of the hotel's owner, Warren Leland. Miss Nellie Thomas, an employee of the hotel, tried to make use of one of the escape ropes. She uncoiled it and threw it from a window. But as she tried to make her way to the ground, another woman, in a window below Miss Thomas's, grabbed hold of the rope and tried to lower herself down. But unable to descend hand over hand, the second evacuee slid down the manila, burning her hand so badly that she let go and fell the rest of the way, breaking her ankle and receiving internal injuries. 
Miss Thomas then made her way down, and although her dress was singed by flames as she passed the third floor, she reached the ground unharmed. Newspaper articles told of many heroic rescues made by firefighters. Among them was the rescue of three women by firefighters Edward Ford and William Clark. They spotted two women at a window on the fourth floor, raising an extension ladder to the second floor that then used scaling ladders the rest of the way. But as they reached the window, a third woman appeared from the window of an adjoining room. Her view hampered by smoke, she was about to jump when Clark called out to her and told her to hold on. He then stretched his leg over to the sill of her room and helped her to do the same in reverse until they both reached the neighboring window where the two other women were with Fireman Ford. Together, Clark and Ford carried each woman, one at a time, down the scaling ladders to the extension ladder, then finally to safety. Clark was awarded the James Gordon Bennett Medal and was promoted the following year. He then had an impressive career, having been cited three more times for bravery and attaining the rank of deputy chief in 1925. He died in 1929 while still an active member of the department. He named his son, Harry Archer Clark, after his good friend, FDNY Honorary Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Harry M. Archer. Within 90 minutes of the start of the fire, the building had been essentially gutted and underwent several collapses, trapping any remaining survivors. In the end, an estimated 90 people lost their lives, with many being unidentified. The Windsor Hotel fire, though long forgotten by most, goes down in the annals of New York fire history as one of the worst and deadliest blazes the city has ever experienced. I'm Jennifer Brown, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum. Thank you for listening to our Throwback FDNY podcast. We invite you to become a member of our wonderful cultural institution in Lower Manhattan. We preserve the history of the fire department in New York City, educate the public on fire and life safety, and celebrate the wonderful traditions of the FDNY. To learn more about our membership program and the perks it offers, go to nycfiremuseum.org. As you know from our previous podcast episodes, the FDNY did not operate ambulances to respond to calls from the general public until 1996 when the New York City Emergency Medical Service was merged with the department. But EMS has a wonderful history in the city, dating back to the latter half of the 19th century. One of the interesting elements of that history is Dr. Emily Dunning Barringer, the first woman to become an ambulance surgeon, not only in New York, but in the world. Born in 1876 to a wealthy family that fell on hard times, the young Miss Dunning, her five siblings and their mother, were left to fend for themselves when her father went to Europe in an attempt to rebuild his fortune. In her father's absence, her mother Frances, a strong woman in her own right, was very much in control of her family and thought it was important to give serious thought to the future of her daughters living in a man's world. She kept abreast of Susan B. Anthony's suffrage movement. She was aware of Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman physician in the United States, who established the Women's Medical College of the New York Infirmary, 
then located on East 14th Street, four blocks, just one half mile, away from the Dunning home. When Emily completed her secondary schooling, it was decided she would attend college. Dr. Mary Putnam Jacoby recommended she attend Cornell University's pre-medical program. It just so happened that Emily's uncle was a founder of Cornell. After completing undergraduate work, she was accepted to Dr. Blackwell's Medical College, and upon her graduation, she applied for an internship at Gouverneur Hospital. She was denied admission at first, but was accepted on her second attempt. Much like the first women in the FDNY, she faced significant challenges from her male colleagues and supervisors who attempted to discourage her and convince her that they did not agree with her presence. It was during that internship that she was required to work on the ambulance, something never before done by a woman. We look back on that now and are amazed at some of the challenges her male counterparts believed disqualified her for the assignment. Like, how would she be able to climb into the ambulance while wearing a skirt. She not only overcame these and other challenges, but her untiring commitment to the job also drew the attention of New York's newspapers, who ran numerous feature articles about her. Her autobiography, Bowery to Bellevue, is an outstanding account of what it was like for her as she broke new ground, glass ceilings, and every stereotype in the book. If you have any interest in either EMS history, or the role of history-making women, I highly recommend reading it. If you do, you will see what life was like, not just for Dr. Barringer, but for the people of New York, and how she responded to their needs, in ways others might not have. Anyone working in EMS today owes a debt of gratitude to Emily Dunning Barringer. It would be wrong and unjust to do so solely because she was a woman, and had to overcome prejudices, but because she was an outstanding physician and ambulance surgeon who played a role, regardless of her gender, in the advancement of pre-hospital emergency care in New York, as well as in the country. The work of emergency medical services today would not be the same were it not for people like Dr. Emily Dunning Barringer. This is Jennifer Brown from the New York City Fire Museum. We have a great event coming up in March, and we hope you will join us. As part of the six-month exhibition, Colonial Firefighting and the American Revolution, the museum will host a private viewing and special panel discussion on the Great Fire of 1776, how it started, how it was fought, and who was to blame for the devastation and suffering it caused. This event will feature an esteemed moderator and a panel of experts who will deep dive into this historical incident and response, including our very own throwback FDNY podcast host, Gary Urbanowitz. Please join us on March 21st, beginning at 5.30 p.m. for this unique event. For more information and to register for the event, please go to the event page of the museum website at nycfiremuseum.org. In past episodes of Throwback FDNY, we discussed the women of the FDNY who broke through the gender barrier to become firefighters. That first historic class of probies are now all retired, and some have passed away. Among them are some women whose impact on FDNY history was notable beyond overcoming the tremendous obstacles they faced. One of those women is Rochelle Jones, 
better known by the nickname Rocky. In 2003, she became the first woman in FDNY history to become a battalion chief. Chief Jones discussed her career with recently retired Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio on an FDNY Pro Podcast episode. Another leading woman at the FDNY, Battalion Chief Michelle Fitzsimmons, joined that interview. Let's listen to some of that conversation. So how early on, for each of you, how early on in your tenure did you decide you're going to promote to higher ranks? For me, my first firehouse was not a great experience, but they were all studying. And with very few people speaking to me, I had plenty of time to study. But it was also to have more knowledge as a firefighter. That's one of the great things that came out of my being in that firehouse was that I was already getting into reading the books. I didn't pass my first lieutenant's test in 1986, and I didn't like that feeling very much. And I thought, you can tell me a lot of things that maybe I can't do on this job. You can say that you don't think I'm strong enough, but you're not going to tell me I'm not smart enough. So... After that test, I decided that the next test would be my test. I was very lucky to be in a study group with a bunch of guys from a truck company in Brooklyn, and I was working in an engine company in Staten Island, and that made a big difference for me. I loved those guys, and without them, I don't know if I would have done as well in my lieutenant's test, and they actually dragged me back in to study for captain because I was so happy as a lieutenant. I wasn't really sure I wanted to go any further because I was just having such a good time. So they dragged me back in kicking and screaming, and I did very well on my captain's test, which set me up to take the battalion chief's test. I feel very lucky that I came on, you know, I was very fortunate to come on in 1982, and I was very fortunate to have a long enough career to see lots of changes happen with the department, lots of changes happen for women, and I wish that a lot of my early sisters could have stayed long enough to see all the changes and all the goodness that has happened. I couldn't have imagined as a probie in 1982, retiring as a battalion chief and having such a great career and seeing women be more accepted. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I'm saying it was unimaginable to me in 1982 to be where we are today. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. What important building was set ablaze risking the lives of hundreds of children during the draft riots of 1863? The answer can be found in our last episode. And remember, you can listen to that and all of our previous episodes by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you by the New York City Fire Museum with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official philanthropic organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important reminder. We continue to see devastating fires occur in our city caused by defective lithium-ion batteries. This month alone, three occurred on the same day, with one starting on the first floor and spreading throughout the building within minutes, requiring a full five-alarm response. 
it can't be stated any stronger than to tell you how dangerous and deadly these fires can be, both to civilians and to firefighters. If you own a mobility device with lithium-ion batteries, please, please be sure that the batteries you are using carry the underwriter's laboratory seal and follow all instructions for their use and charging. For more information on lithium-ion battery safety, visit the website of fdnypro.org. We can all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. Until next time, thank you and stay safe.